Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. Today I'm reviewing, uh, well, first of all, it's Bakukul New Cult, the fifth. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my review of Kendermore by Mary Kirchhoff. I'd like to take a moment and thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below. You can even pick up Dragonlance Gaming materials using my affiliate links. Now, um, this is just my opinion. <laughs> Not professional at all, just my fan opinion. So if yours differs, that's okay. Let me know in the comments. If you happen to be joining live, welcome. Thank you so much for tuning in live. Let me know in the uh, live chat what you thought of Kendermore. Now, the way these work is I'm going to give you my pre-written review. And then after that, we'll just sort of riff. Whatever you put up in chat, I'll comment on. And then, um, if, you know, it doesn't even have to do with this doesn't have to do with this novel. It could have anything to do with Dragonlance in general. I'm going to be going over a bunch of extra stuff very briefly because it came up in the review. So just a couple other notes that if it strikes your fancy, let me know and we'll just sort of riff it a little bit. It is a Friday, so I hope you guys are having a, a great beginning to your weekend. <laughs> I don't know. Mine's going to be a little bit rough. Hey, Jeff, how you doing, man? Anthony, what is up? Yeah, not my favorite either, but... Oh, we'll get into it. So returning to these preludes is like visiting an old friend. I know a lot of people have problems with Kender, both in novels and in game, but I've always been a fan. To me, the best part of a Kender is the hypocrisy and their wit. They handle items, then grow genuinely hurt when you call them a thief for taking your things without permission. Then they can turn on a dime and taunt you to tears of rage. But again, they will take any personal slight deep into their heart. Taz is this personified. What I am not so eager to revisit with each of these stories are the same descriptions of Solace and the Inn of the Last Home. Don't get me wrong, I love those locations. But every book describes them in such great detail, knowing that they are at least the 10th novel to have done so, at what point is enough enough? The story starts after Kitiara, Sturm, Karaman, and Raceland have left Solace for their five-year sojourns. Taz, Tannis, and Flint are kicking it at the inn, drinking while a stout and gorgeous dwarf named Gisela Hornslager enters with her assistant Woodrow. I immediately fell for this character, as she is as sexually overt in her mannerisms and suggestions as I am, and I dig it. There are a number of adult jokes that I never got as a kid. And it really makes this reread a delight. She's looking for Taz because he has a bounty on him, and this is the setup to the novel. Now, apparently, Kendermore was getting low in its population, so they began to institute a forced marriage. Since it's law, and Taz hasn't returned to Kendermore yet to marry the mayor, Meridon Metwinger's daughter, Damaris, they put out a bounty on him to return him to Kendermore. In order to prove how serious they are, the mayor detained Taz's uncle, Trapspringer Furfoot, absconding with his minotaur, or werewolf, bone, he doesn't know which is the true origin, and sent it with the bounty hunter, the voluptuous Gisela, to show Taz that Trapspringer is truly held prisoner and that Taz must go with them. Now, initially, Flint and Taz were stopping Gisela and Woodrow from taking him, but he eventually agreed to go with them. They travel all the way to the coast of New Sea, referencing a pre-cataclysm map, and grow even more uh, furious with Taz's shortcut. When they finally saw the coast, they were approached by a horde of gully dwarves offering the very pretty Gisela a pulley job. Pause for laughter. She took it for a former pulley job she had back in the day 
Must have been something to do with uh, the end of a massage. That's the inference anyway. And she refused. Then she realized that they were using pulleys to bring up crates from the sea 600 feet below Zach Saroth. Woodrow suggests that they use the pulleys to lower the wagon to the empty ship and take it to the other side of Nusi. When they get to the agar dwarves together and tie up the wagon, it makes it to the bottom, but all of the contents seem to empty out into the sea on the way. Meanwhile, Uncle Trapspringer visits a doctor in Kendermore called Phineas Curick. This human is a dentist by trade, but does what he can to fleece money out of the never-ending stream of Kender. I also appreciated the chaos of Kendermore and the mayor's audience hall. It's as insane as one would imagine it to be. Trap Springer pays the doctor with half of a treasure map, so the doctor tries to find him to get the other half once he realizes what he has. This leads him to City Hall and Kender Chaos. Ultimately, he's invited to the palace where um, uh, Trap Springer is supposed to be held, traveling through Kendermore, even uh, for those who live in Kendermore, it's a nightmare trying to get around. Roads are randomly begun and ended. Signs are never updated, so there's constant conflicting messages. Phineas has one boot stolen and had to trade the other boot for a shortcut through a candle shop. He finally gets to the place where is, there's a truly beautiful building and finds the prisoners roam free. He finds Uncle Trapspringer and asks for the other half of the map. Trapspringer believes that he gave it to Tasselhoff Burfoot when someone comes in from the mayor's office and tells Trapspringer that he can leave as the mayor's daughter, tired of waiting on Taz, left to the ruins. So the wedding is off and he's free to go. This panics Phineas, who will never find the treasure without the other half of the map. So he convinces Trapspringer to find Damaris, the mayor's daughter, with him. He returns to his office to pack up uh, for the trip when a man with a sword wound enters and forces the dentist to sew him up. Now, this burly human pays him with a lot of steel, and when Trapspringer reappears, the stranger is gone. In truth, he found the half of the map that Phineas had and is shadowing them to the ruins to steal the treasure from them. They travel to the ruins and are attacked by monsters and end up in the ruined Tower of High Sorcery's grove, which heightens their emotions. They turn on one another, and an ogre comes out of nowhere and rescues them? <laughs> the ogre, named Vincent, has trapped them, but is quite articulate and polite, making them dinner. Meanwhile, Taz, Woodrow, and Gisela are sailing across the new sea with a massive storm strikes their ship and wagon. They begin to pull the wagon out of the water from the other side of the shore, but have to abandon it as it gets stuck. They grab what they can carry and head inland, only to meet a troop of dwarves led by Baron Crackhold from Roslovigan. They uh, invite them to the town, which is about to start its Oktoberfest. Now, I do want to put a note in here. I understand why she called it Oktoberfest, so that the audience immediately knows that it's a beer fest. But dwarves have their own vernacular. They have their own language to like, explain what these are. And it would only take an extra line to say, oh, well, this particular fest is our version of a beer festival or a Oktoberfest. And that would have solved it. Injecting real-world vernacular into a fantasy world when it comes to actual holidays that specific nations enjoy takes you completely out of the fantasy. 
At least it does me. What do you think? Anyway, they learn that Taz knows Flint Fireforge, the son of Rhaegar Fireforge from the Dwarfgate Wars, and the Baron also knows the name, obviously, and is honored to have his friend as his guest of honor. They all travel to the town, and the party ensues. A gnome has a carousel there, and Taz and Woodrow ride it as the animals come alive, and a dragon that Taz was riding takes him and Woodrow to a mountaintop citadel where another gnome is waiting. Apparently, these two gnomes are wizards of some sort, and their life quests are to collect species. They needed a kender, so they tell him that they can have their... Um, uh, that they have to stuff them both and put them in a display. Now, this is a great presentation of gnomes, save for the wizard aspect. It seems to be contrary to their obsessiveness and uh, with carousels on their life quest. At what point did they learn to be wizards? Or at what point did they get magic items in order to transform carousel rides into flying obstacles? It never addresses it. I'm not sure it has to, but for someone like me, I really want to know. In any case, not wanting to be stuffed, Taz and Woodrow run through the keep trying to get out, and they end up running into a woolly mammoth that is crying and is going to be killed any day now. It had been raised there and taught how to talk and have mannerisms by the gnomes. Taz and Woodrow promise to help it escape as well. Taz is then taken to a glass jar fitting room by the gnomes, and when he finds one that fits, Winnie and Woodrow start busting through walls in order to escape. They believe that Taz is murdered, and when the gnomes try to stop them, Taz comes up behind them and bashes their heads together. They crumple down to the floor unconscious, and the three of them escape by busting through the keep's walls. Back at the dwarven village earlier, Giselle is trying to buy silk when she witnesses Taz and Woodrow flying away. Frantic, she tries to get help, but everyone's busy with the festival. Then Denzil from Kendermore appears. Now, Denzil is that burly human that had that sword wound that was sewed up by the dentist. Apparently, he went looking for Taz towards Solace rather than the ruins, as I suspected. My big question would be, one, how did he know Taz had the other side of the map? Two, how would he know where to look for Taz, who had the other side of the map? And three, how did he just happen upon this one dwarven town that everyone else had to enter in through a cavern to get to? All these questions, but hey... Who cares about logic? It's a kender tale. So he asks Gisela if she needs to help, um, if she needs help, and they leave to find the pair in the mountains. Now, Denzil is a complete asshat, and he's violent with Giselle, abusive. But for some insane reason, she doesn't mind and actually seduces him. Now, I am not one to frown on adults doing whatever they want as long as all parties are consenting. But why make her an abuse apologist? There's no reason for it. One of my earliest memories was my father physically abusing my mother before they were divorced. I know that there are many complicated reasons why abused individuals stay with their abusers, but they don't have to. There are organizations that can help you escape relationships. Please, if you ever find yourself in this situation, get help. You deserve better than to be in an abusive relationship. No one deserves it. They're going to be gaslighting you the whole time you're trying to leave, and sometimes it may actually risk your own life. But what's the alternative? Being killed whenever they have a fit of rage or trying to get the fuck out of the situation? Excuse me. 
So they get up to the keep when Taz is escaping, and Denzel threatens Gisela when she sees him reaching for his crossbow, and he ends up killing her. He attacks the group, and they narrowly escape, believing him to be dead. They take Gisela's corpse and bury it, leaving Taz, um, leaving Taz's hoopack as his gravestone. Now, if this doesn't endear you to Taslav Burfoot, I believe you might just be a monster. This was a beautiful act of caring and sorrow. He refused to leave her body behind in the heat of danger because he considered her a friend. Now, I heard this line in John Wick 4, friendship means little when it's convenient. It immediately popped into my head after reading this section, and it forced me to question my own friendships and how some of them ended. Now, I've not always been a good friend. Sometimes I've been a shitty friend. And I left some of my friendships in complete ruins. I think I can do better in that department. And reading this section in this random fantasy novel completely forced me to reevaluate how I behave to other people. And that's a powerful thing. All right. So they escape to Kur looking for passage with the woolly mammoth who ends up leaving them in order to travel to Ice Region and find his family. They buy passage to Goodland, only to see Denzil wandering to the boat. They leap onto the garbage barge being pulled behind the ship, and they were cut loose in the middle of the bay. They float around for a while until minotaurs come by and give them passage for a while in return for an owl-bear corpse. Now, I suppose owl-bear corpses are delicious or something, because I can't imagine why they would have done that, but they did. But they were then stranded again after they consumed it only to somehow be picked up again by the same ship that they paid for uh, passage on. Now, I don't know how this math could possibly work out. It's got to be a crazy math problem. You leave one ship traveling at X knots per hour, only to be left behind, then picked up by a Minotaur ship, leaving uh, traveling the opposite direction at X mile or kilometers per hour or knots per hour, and then they leave you, and then the first ship goes like a full 360 to come pick you up again. It, it literally made no sense at all how that could even possibly have happened. But, again, logic. It's a kinder tale. So, they, um, they end up, they get picked up by that ship. They end up in Goodland only to have Woodrow knocked out and Taz abducted by Denzel. They travel to the ruins as Taz has convinced Denzel that he can guide him past the grove outside the ruins. Back at the ruins, Vincent hears others outside in the grove and leaves while Trapspringer and Phineas sneak up the stairs to accidentally open a portal into a pocket dimension. They jump in and land in a candy land created by a kender who found a necklace of wishes and used them in order to make it. All of the kender that Vincent saved earlier from the grove seem to have ended up here, and they are trapped in something like Wonka's factory. They are all very large, obese, and have uh, having only eaten candy, and some of them have been here since six. That's zero six alt-cataclysis. Six years after the cataclysm. And it's 346 years at this point. So Denzel tries to kill Taz when he realizes that he doesn't actually know how to get through the grove, as Taz was just stalling in order to find an opportunity to escape. Vincent arrived and abducts them both, then outs Denzel as a half-orc. A half-orc. Why? 
oh, why would the editor of a Dragonlance novel, uh, of all the Dragonlance novels, as this author is, not know that half-orcs don't exist on Kryn? At this point, it should be common knowledge to the editor of the entire saga's novel line. Ah, so Taz sneaks up to the stairs to find the portal as well, and Denzil stops him halfway through, ready to kill him. The Kender inside of the pocket dimension see half of Taz grab his arms trying to pull him inside while Denzil is on the other side trying to pull him out, and then Vincent the Ogre arrives and pulls them all, dragging all of the Kender back from the pocket dimension into reality. Now all this is happening, and we cut to the most crazy odd moment of this entire novel. Tachesis, brooding in the abyss. She discovered this pocket dimension a long time ago as a possible way to re-enter Kryn, but it's never been open long enough for her to use it. Now, with all of this commotion, she begins to materialize through the pocket dimension when Damaris, Taz's once betrothed, accidentally breaks the lever that opens and closes the pocket dimension door, and after Denzel leaps inside of it to try to find the treasure that he sure is still in there, that's, of course, been used up, trapping him and the Queen of Darkness back in that pocket dimension. Now, this enrages Takesis, and she demands that Nuitari scorch all of Kendermore as retribution. They all leave for Kendermore, bringing Vincent the Ogre with them, and they find it on fire with tornadoes and lightning everywhere. They all scramble, getting every Kender together and organized to fight the fires, and Woodrow shows up looking for Taz. They all work together, and when the storm passes, the Kender decides to rebuild. Trapspringer marries Damaris, and Woodrow takes over Giselle's job. Taz tried to look for his parents, but they were gone, and Trapspringer supposedly teleports to Lunatary with his new wife, allegedly finding his first wife there as well. Now, I don't know if this was before or after Sturm and Kitiara got there with the gnomes, but it's weird that everyone seems to be going to Lunatary, and yet no one even knows anything that the moons are anything but gods in the sky. Kind of weird. Now, this was a Kender tale of a story, if ever there was one. And with that perspective in mind, I enjoyed it. Now, I could be very, very critical about this novel. I could completely pick it apart. But it's like a gnome-centered story. It's supposed to be out there and ridiculous. So why not just go with it? I would only recommend this to fans of Kender and Tasseloff Burfoot, however. Others can pretty much steer clear of this novel. But I, for one, did, in fact, enjoy it. So what do you guys have to say about this? Uh, yeah, this is the one with the woolly mammoth, Jeff. And it can talk. Very much like Dumbo or something. It was very strange. Very, very strange. It's where he learned that Uncle Trapspringer is actually a real person. Yeah, he's not a fantasy fairy tale. And he actually is Tasselhoff's uncle, not like all Kender refer to him as their uncle. This actually clarifies it. So it sounds like they knew their audience. Hey, the Graphic Dragon, thanks for tuning in live. They knew their audience, 12 to 15-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I got to say, that pulley job joke, I never got the reference when I was a kid. I just, it, it was just never in my mind. Reading it now, I was like, wait a second. They really reference hand jobs in a Dragonlance novel? That's the weirdest thing. <laughs> like that, there's a Kender story in one of the tales where there's like an orgy in the Inn of the Last Home because a Kender poured magical potion of lovemaking into uh, Odic's brewing ale. I'm sorry, into his, uh, 
ale, or actually I think it was his wart when he was making his ale, and then it made like a love potion. Everyone drank and it got super horny and started, you know, a massive orgy. So that was weird. But this was like subtle and overt at the exact same time, and I don't know. Young Adam never got it. Adult Adam definitely got it. Uh, Rhiannon, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. Injun, how you doing, man? Uh, Kendra Moore is your favorite Taz novel, but it has some definite lore questions. Yeah, for sure. But, it, you know, whenever... All of these Dragonlance novels are written for kids. I'm not a kid anymore. And so I have a different criteria for how I judge them versus, say, my favorite author, Clive Barker. Completely different tone, completely different, you know, views of... Uh, uh, reality and life and life lessons and stuff. And, and it's just a, a different audience, a different aged audience. And so I always, whenever I'm reviewing these novels, I sort of try to put myself back in my kid mind and then just review it based on that. If it still has logical fallacies, I'll call them out and I'll judge it based on that age, but I'm not going to judge it based on me being adult Adam and reading a kid's book because that's just not fair. And especially kids' books like Conundrum or Kendermore. They're meant to be silly, goofy, like sort of out there. Like Toad, the, the Toad novel. It's complete, like it has a whole porno scene from the Irida Ogres. Like, yeah, it's supposed to be goofy and sort of out there. So you can't really use an adult mind to judge it. But you should always judge it based on whether it is uh, following the lore of the IP, you know, and that's really what I get critical about. Not so much the quality of the writing or, you know, the tone or anything like that. All right. It's all right. If you're late running, don't matter. Let's see. Um, Denzel is described as a half orc, meaning he was possibly from off world. Something you touched in your, on your other materials. Yeah. And it did talk about him. He had, he was writing a nightmare, like the horse, a nightmare. Uh, and he said he won it from defeating a demon. I mean, there's been demons in Dragonlance since the very beginning. Tasselhoff met one, you know, in that first short story, uh, uh, Stone's Throw Away. So demons have always been, and there was a lot of demons in the Toad novel. They've always been a part of Dragonlance. Nightmares have always been a part of Dragonlance, Lord Soth. Um, I, the, but there was no other inference that he was from somewhere else. I guess that's my biggest problem. And you can make the argument that pocket dimensions are accessible, if they're accessible from the abyss, then possibly they're accessible from other dimensions of reality or other prime material worlds and stuff. Yeah, okay. It's just, you shouldn't have to jump through those logical hoops when you're reading a kid novel. <laughs> you know what I mean? It should be a little more just, you know, rolls off the top of your head type stuff. Um, you had a character who was the daughter of Trap Springer and Damaris. Wow. All right. That'd be kind of cool. Were they stuck on Lunatary? Uh, hey, Anthony. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I said idea. Yeah. Um, I'm not even going to, I'm not going to try to pronounce that with the uh, Roll State TV. Hello from France. How you doing, man? I hope everything over there is going well. Yeah, he says his parents aren't home, but they were, they haven't been home for a while. And so it sort of adds this, I don't know of any novel where he actually meets his parents or his parents are ever brought up, but it did seem like he wanted to meet his parents and they were like missing in some way. Like, it was like this added mystery at the very end of the novel, which was intriguing, but it hadn't, it wasn't germane to the novel at all. And so that's why I didn't add it to the review. It was just one of those little, like, ooh, what if things. Uh, Burfoot Project uses the book heavily. Cool. 
So you could always tinker with this story. <laughs> Thanks, tune in, Michael. Uh, let's see. What was the treasure? Okay, so the treasure was that necklace, that little diamond necklace thing that allowed them to make wishes. And so a, a baker from Kendermore found it in this you know, massive locked box that some wizard of high sorcery left it in, in this little pocket dimension he created before the Tower of High Sorcery in um, the ruins was destroyed and made into the ruins. So it's all just a happenstance that it even exists at all. How someone found it to make a map of it and get out with the map, I will never know. Maybe the wizard escaped the, the lost battles and he told some about it and it sort of got handed down legend like that. But again, it's a kinder tale. I don't think too hard about it. If you guys wrote a D&D &D story, how would you come up with the names, storyline, stuff like that? Same way I do campaigns, you know? I usually start with the players, what type of characters do they want to play? And then I think how, first of all, I got to choose an era based on those character types because I'm not going to do something that doesn't fit with fifth age if, if they're choosing something um, fifth age. And if, I'm not going to do something that fits before the War of the Lands, like in the Cataclysm era, if they want to play priests and stuff. So it totally depends on the player's mindset. And of course, if I'm just making it up, then I'll just choose an era. And then I think, well, I want to start small. So what's the grand scale story I want to tell? And this is very loose and I keep it very cloudy and uh, malleable. Once I have the grand scale story in mind, then I think, how can I start this very, very intimately and small with first level characters? And what challenges, you know, I try to think of it in three act structures. So the overarching story, what three acts can I break it down into? And then the small intimate side of it, how, what kind of three act structure can I break that into? And then just sort of build on that as we move on. All the while, because it's not a planned campaign, it's just sort of, you know, an amorphous concept. I'll let the player's actions dictate where we go and whether or not we follow my original plan or I deviate from it. And I always then try to pull back about the second or third act in to something that happened in the first act. So your first bad guy, who's probably not going to be the campaign's bad guy, but the first acts or the first story arcs, three act structure bad guy is going to be someone that they met very, very early on that they had no idea was someone of any significance at all. And then you get that little like switch of, of a mindset in the characters where they can't trust anything now. They thought they were doing something um, that had, you know, or they were engaging with someone that had no bearing on anything. And then suddenly they realize that that was a real mover and shaker, at least at their level. And so they have to really kind of rethink everything else that they um, sort of met around and engaged with in the whole structure. And then I'll use what they come up with as possible jumping off story points for larger scale enemies because let's be honest your players are going to be infinitely more creative with where they want to go with their characters in the story than you could ever anticipate at the very very beginning of a campaign so it's a little bit of column a with my planning a lot of column b with the players engagement and their planning and me trying to throw in spears of shock and awe throughout the course of the the game and stuff so anyway that's what i do Let's see. Um, Leaves from the Inn says that Chat Springer thing is a myth. Yeah. And this is what bugs me. She, Mary Kirchhoff edited Leaves from the Inn of the Last Home. She was the editor for most of the Dragonlance novels. She 
wrote this. So she knows that it's not a myth because she wrote it. Unless she's saying that this entire novel then is nothing but a myth. Now, we also have to remember that this was written after Leaves from the End of Last Home. So at that point, she might have thought it was a myth, and then she just decided to make it something interesting and real. So you know, Dragonlance is nothing if not evolutionary and contradictory. We always have to keep that in mind as well. All right, let's see. Uh, Kendra Moore was one of the first Dragonlance books you bought and read before Chronicles. Oh, cool. That's cool. So you bought the Toad book but haven't read it yet? Oh, it's goofy. I enjoyed it a lot. It's not as funny as I was led to believe it was going to be, but it is a good read. And, and it really changes your whole perspective of Toad, like 100%. So you feel like the, hey, Graphic Dragon, you feel like the story was kind of told from Taz's point of view, which makes the narrator unreliable. You almost feel like the story is telling around the fire during Chronicles. Yeah, I could totally see that. Yeah, same with the stones throw away. Anytime the center, the story is focused on a kender or a gnome, you really have to just be like, well, I'm going to go tongue-in-cheek because I can't believe any of this. <laughs> it's, it's probably going to be a tall tale. See, uh, Dragon Taz always had to entertain with a good... Yeah. Let's see what else. We come back to these books, mess with them, or totally ignoring them. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is at this point, who cares about Dragonlance novels? Like, not even the new ones are particularly great. So, if all of it is flawed and just sort of whatever you prefer, you can completely ignore them and just play the role-playing games or do whatever you want in reading. But if you are going to revisit them, always remember that they're not written for you at your age right now or with modern sensibilities in mind. They're written at a specific time in human history with a very specific idea of launching gaming products in mind <laughs> and that's really all it comes down to so as long as you keep that in mind you can still have fun with them you know i mean i do that's why i'm still reading them is because i do have fun with them i i sometimes some of them suck some of them are great but most often they're kind of you know c's <laughs> if you're going to give them a grade but who cares just have some fun and that goes with anything in life. Anything you read, and I hope everyone here reads, reading is incredibly important. It's, it's not only expands the way you think, your vocabulary, uh, the way that you process information, it helps you then write and create stories and understand concepts in other contexts. It's really important, so please pick up a book. I don't care what it is, just read. Um, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that, man. I'm, um, I have a love-hate relationship with this channel <laughs> because I do it. <laughs> it's a complete pain in my ass some days. But what are you going to do? Um, all right, so uh, Dragonlance fans is odd at times. Yeah, dude. Yeah, for sure. Cover Kendermore is different from, the, from yours. Yeah, there's a couple different versions of Kendermore cover, which I find interesting. Like, they have zero consistency even with their design. <laughs> but I don't care, whatever. All right, that's going to do it for my review of Kendermore by Mary Kirchhoff. What do you think of the gnomes kidnapping species with a magical carousel? What about a talking woolly mammoth and a cultured ogre? And finally, is Takesis trying to invade Kryn a bad trope at this point? You can email me at info@dlsaga.com or leave a comment below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click that like button. It all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. 
And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world, sometimes wacky world, of Dragonlance. Thank you so much for joining the celebration. Until next time, I'm Adam for Dragonlance Saga. Slanjavar.